This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Welcome to Your Cases on Hold, a JBJS podcast hosted by Antonia Chen and Andrew Schoenfeld. Here, we discuss the science of each issue of JBJS with an additional dose of entertainment and pop culture. Take us with you in the gym, on the commute, or most certainly, whenever your case is on hold. Welcome to another podcast of Your Case is on Hold. Hopefully, your case is not on hold as you're listening to this, but if it is, we've got a little entertainment for you. I'm Antonia Chen. I'm deputy editor of Adult Reconstruction Knee, and this is my counterpart, I'm Andrew Schoenfeld. I am the deputy editor for Methodology and the Summertime Winterfell Night King at JBJS. <laughs> it is a little cold here in Boston, I have to admit. This is not ideal. It's already spring. Let's get the warm weather out. Of note, as you can probably guess, all these opinions are our own opinions. They do not reflect JBJS or the uh, editorial staff or anyone else at JBJS. We would like to say that this is brought to you by the Clinical Classrooms. And if you're interested in clinical classrooms, we are currently seeking orthopedic surgeons with at least five years of experience following residency or fellowship to join our clinical classrooms team. And you get to develop questions and learning resources. Please be board certified and enthusiastic about education. If you're interested, please email customer support at jbjs.org to learn more. And without further all ado, true. this all that is true, but I was voted the Night King by the editorial board of JBJS. Ooh, are these like superlatives from high school? No, it's the night thing from Game of Thrones. <laughs> Maybe we should institute that. That'd be kind of fun. <laughs> Most likely to be awake at 3 a.m. <laughs> right. That's you. That's not yeah. me. That's you. <laughs> I'll win that award. <laughs> That's not an award to win, let me tell you. So on that happy note, let's go for our first one. Our first article will be presented by you. And let's discuss long-term health-related quality of life, talking about quality of life, after Harrington instrumentation and fusion for adolescent idiopathic spine, a minimum 40 to follow up by Lander et al. Yes, this is my headline. A very interesting clinical retrospective from uh, Rochester, New York, not Rochester, Minnesota, where equally long-term data is oftentimes available. What this group did was look back on patients who had surgery between 1961 and 1977 for scoliosis with Harrington rod procedures, all performed by Dr. Goldstein, who I believe the fellowship, the spine surgery fellowship there is uh, named after him. This is the work published in this issue 11 by Lander and colleagues. There is a visual summary. They identified uh, basically 134 patients in this cohort, 81 of whom consented to participate and complete the surveys, uh, patient-reported outcome surveys, SRS7, ODI, and then a smaller number of patients completing PROMISE29 and EQ5D. Really interesting work. Uh, I selected it as a headline because these are historically pretty morbid surgeries, um, large incisions, 
very, uh, you know, first line, first generation surgical instrumentation, no precision in terms of instrumentation of the vertebrae or anything along those lines, high risk of infection, a lot of scarring, but these, this cohort of patients did uh, exceptionally well. And this group demonstrates normal self-reported health-related quality of life compared with the age-matched general population. Now, that is absolutely great news. At the same time, it's the group of patients who consented to participate. So maybe they're more inclined to be happier with their, with their outcome. But a really interesting look at a procedure which is no longer performed and we only tend to see the the adverse consequences of of these kinds of procedures anymore. So it it is a, an interesting look back on a cohort of patients in a historical setting, and um, very informative that way. So definitely check it out. The visual summary for our visual learner friends in the event that um, the uh, text is too dense. Tell me about your headline. So I like pictures as well too. Now my headline talks about quality of life. And this I chose as the headline because I just talked about being up at three in the morning, probably not a good thing. And we shouldn't be doing work at three in the morning because my headline is about talking about uh, objects in the mirror are closer than they appear. Symptoms of depression and suicidality in orthopedic surgeons. This is by Stein et al. And there's a commentary with this, not a visual one, but it's a commentary, which I think is actually key to this. And I think what happens is as we're getting older and as time has gone on, we're realizing that quality of life is actually something not to be scoffed at. I think it used to be, you know, work hard, don't stop and don't breathe and just go. And I think that was the tenets of our training in residency, right? Work hard, play hard, keep partying like it's your job. Um, party like it's 1999. Oh, wait, no, that was previously. <laughs> so, you know, there were no work hour restrictions previously. And, you know, prior to our generation, you know, I remember attending saying to me, you know, I've been working, I've been in the hospital for, you know, 140 hours a week. And you're like, that sounds crazy. You probably lived here and they did live there. So it's interesting to see that they're bringing an important topic to light because it feels like depression and suicide are in the, you know, don't ask, don't tell categories of medicine, especially in orthopedic surgery. You know, you don't talk about these topics. So in this study, they had a survey study sent to members of multiple professional societies. Now, the problem is if you weren't a member of these professional societies, you never saw this survey or you had a less likelihood of seeing this survey. So it didn't go out to, for example, the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons, which is a much bigger group. Of note, uh, it did not go to AUKUS or MSTS. I know for AUKUS, it has to go through a research committee and they only give up two surveys per year. So they went through word of mouth and emails and other secondary ways of reaching out to individuals in these areas. So because of that, they only got 661 surveys. While a decent number, the response was only 5.9%. So they did report that they did have a denominator, which is good. And if you actually look at AAOS, there are actually 39,000 members, um, not all of them are orthopedic surgeons. And this survey was specifically orthopedic surgeons. And if you do a quick Google search, there's over 23,000 active orthopedic surgeons in the US. So it's a small percentage of people, but it's still relevant with the information being presented there. And it was really sobering. You know, it's you know, 20, over 20% of people who responded said they endorsed some active uh, suicide ideation in their lifetime. Over 30% had active or passive suicide ideation. And 5% said at least one time they actually had a plan. And we remember back to medical school, when you have a plan, that's, that's game over. That's, that's, you're, you're, you need, it's, it's important to get seek help at that point in time. And I don't think it's something that we talk about with one another and something that's actually pretty scary to think about. Just thinking of depression, you know, these are a few things that are a little bit 
So right, some of these things are non-modifiable, you know, race or ethnicity are listed as other. You have increased risk of depression or if you're single or if you have if you don't have children, if you intended if you attend residency internationally or practice internationally. So for international colleagues, I hope things are OK overseas because that's something to watch out for. Another thing that was really interesting is if you attended residency in the northeastern or midwestern part of the U.S., you had less symptoms of depression, which I found interesting. I thought the West Coast would be the opposite of that, but the West Coast actually increased risk of suicide, uh, increased risk of depression if you trained on the West Coast. I don't know if it's because it's super competitive and everyone wants to be there, but it was interesting to see that, I thought. So these are sobering findings for sure. I would say with those kinds of things, you know, what constitutes like the Northeast or the Midwest, if especially if you're using like the census regions, those are really broad strokes that are lumping like Pittsburgh with New York City and Boston and Maine. And and the West is such like a big area. So when they're talking about West here, I don't know if they really mean West Coast and it's just like you know, the folks at Cedar sinai and on the beaches of LA, but it's also, you know, the folks in Colorado and the Dakotas and Montana and Wyoming and Oregon and the Eastern part of Washington state. So it's hard to, I think, make those, those regional associations, um, but definitely sobering in a number of respects. Crazy sobering. You're right about the, the geographic region. And this is also attended residency, right? Not actually currently practicing at this time frame. So mm-hmm. where you did your training, which, you know, they could be 20 years from training or 30 years from training and it'd be a different ballgame. So the, re- the association with residency is a little bit, as you say, a little bit more suspect. I agree with things like gender. So female surgeons had higher active lifetime uh, suicide ideation, divorced, So if you can prevent getting divorced, apparently that had a impact on it. If you were a foot and ankle surgeon or an arthroplasty surgeon, you had increased risk of it as well, too. So that made me a little bit sad as an arthroplasty surgeon. So, you know, it's one of those things where they looked at past, they look at active, they look at passive, they look at recent suicide ideation. But just to bring this topic to light, I think is actually really important. It's something we don't talk about enough with our trainees. We don't talk about enough amongst each other. And I think we need to support each other way more than we realize. And um, having mental health time is actually key. And I'm glad that the conversation started. So that's why I chose this as my um, headline. And um, I I applaud JBGS for bringing this to light. Absolutely. I think it's now time for us to enter the the outworld arena, choose your destiny, or maybe it's the ortho world arena. Who's your favorite Mortal Kombat character? Call me Sub-Zero. Call me Scorpion. That's a tough one. You're going to kill me for this. Mortal Kombat. I don't know, actually. I don't have a favorite. Have a favorite I'm a Street one. Fighter right. person. I like Street Fighter. <laughs> Street Fighter was Chung Lee. Street Fighter person. Street Fighter because I'm Chung Lee, but I'm a girl. So <laughs> she had the pigtails. I wanted to identify That's with her. Buns. I did Taekwondo, so it worked out really well. So Chung Lee was my girl. (laughs) What's your your favorite? Uh, Street Fighter, Guile. Oh, and how about Mortal Kombat? Uh, Scorpion. That's who I always play. Because you identify? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, because with the face melting, that's what I do to, you know, research that submitted the face melting flames. I feel that every time it gets rejected. I'm like, little, little, oh. little forecast. That's about what's that's about what's gonna happen right here. <laughs> Your case is on hold. Yes, this case is going on hold. We'll um we'll start from there. How's that? We're talking about the association of immediate use steam sterilization with the incidence of orthopedic surgical site infections, a propensity score matched cohort study. Please take this away, Andrew. 
Yes. So this is uh, Tantillo and colleagues. There is an infographic, so definitely check that out. This is work that was conducted using a health system data from a very large uh, health system, Northwell Health. They're in the tri-state area, so our uh, home, our, where both of us originate. They used data from January of 2014 to December 2020, so very recent, and that's great. Looking at basically what we would call flash sterilization, which has been suspected because it's done in, in a quicker fashion of leading to higher risk of surgical site infections. So they looked at total joints and spine surgeries. So also they're speaking our language here. I mean, there can't be, it's from the tri-state area. They're just doing joints and spine. So we, uh, so far so good. Now the, the next step is that their methodology, they're going to do a propensity score match. And here's where things, where the wheels start coming off the bus. So when, when you do a propensity score match, that's a causal inference test. And the classic paradigm, the one that we like teach when we're talking about this is it's like, you're basically trying to do an RCT. And in this case, the RCT would be, we randomize people to flash sterilization or we randomize them to not flash sterilization. That's kind of the convention there. But what they did is they propensity score matched on the risk of infection, which kind of then turns this into sort of like, so you had an infection, let's backtrack and see what the role of the flash sterilization played into it. So this is kind of, you know, it, it doesn't follow like the intuitive convention, but sticking to their sort of a methodologic approach, they're basically just adjusting for the risk factors for infection, which you could have done just doing a standard regression analysis, I would think the, the value of doing the propensity match is somewhat muted, but they end up with 1.4% of patients in the non-flash group versus uh, uh, an infection rate of 1.7, slightly higher, 1.73 for the flash group. And this is not statistically significant. Um, they probably need a lot more patients than, than they actually had. And they only had 111 uh, infections. So that's a that's a pretty small number, even though they they start with seventy thousand patients who underwent orthopedic surgery, and then they have a, like seven thousand and fifty two patients on which they've they've got the smaller group. When you look at their table one, there's there they're not that many differences between the the total cohort, the three thousand that had the flash and the sixty seven thousand that had the non flash sterilization. So again, it's like when you're starting off and the the groups already look pretty balanced intuitive approach of using a propensity score match just doesn't fit as well. And then when we get to like table four, here's another thing that's a little bit challenging when, when they're presenting the, the effect of the sterilization for odds ratio, they're using the effect above 1.0, but then for the relative risk, they're using the reverse. So they're presenting two different kind of approaches when speaking to the same process. Not that there's anything inherently wrong with that. It just makes things a, a little bit confusing, maybe just for me, but I think um, others, I'm relatable to the general population. How's that? Um, I completely agree. So they show that the odds of even this is after the match, they show that the odds of infection with the flash sterilization are higher and that the relative risk of infection in the non-flash group is lower. 
So we're, we're saying the same thing, just looking at it two different ways. And so then they say, and this is reading from, from them directly, the sample risk of infection before the match for the non-flash group was lower. Then the relative risk is closer to one, okay? The confidence intervals overlap one. So there's no evidence that the risk of SSI was higher in the non-flash group versus the flash group. Okay, yes. But again, we're working with like 111 patients. And now you're going to have to step into the Dr. Strange metaverse with me. You ready to have your mind blown? Not different is not the same as the same. Whoa, not different. Say that again. It's not the same. The same means that like you have a 1% risk of infection with this group and it's a 1% risk of infection in that group. 1.7 is not the same. It can be similar. It's close, but it's not the same as 1.4. And what everything is showing here is that there's actually a, it might be marginal, but there is a higher risk of infection with the flash sterilization. They just don't have the numbers to really capture that. Their confidence intervals run from, so let's just focus on the odds ratio, okay? There's a 22% increased risk of odds. It's not significant because the range goes from 0.84 to right around 1.8. So that means that in the if you repeated this so many times, the upper estimate is still like 1.8. The point estimate is 1.2. So indicating that there is an association and you have the upper bound interval at 1.8. If you had a larger sample, those the confidence interval might shrink and it might actually shrink around there actually is a, a, a significant risk. So can this data be rerun to see that and match differently? Yeah, I, I think it could be rerun. And the what if, if somebody said, how would you run this? I would say, identify... What are the factors that played into a decision to do the flash versus not the flash match on that? And then you're closer to sort of simulating this randomized trial of where all other things being considered. What's different is that these people who, who had similar th factors that would go into whatever the decision is playing into deciding on the flash sterilization, these ones got the flash, these ones didn't, and seeing what, what comes of that. Okay. And I will say also too, if I'm not mistaken, one of the biggest things that they're missing as well is comorbidity data, which plays into the potential risk of surgical site infection. They have like diabetes, they have ASA. And they have ASA, which, which a lot of people want to use as sort of a kind of like a, a oh yeah, it's like a Charlson, it's a proxy for, and in some ways it is, but in some ways it isn't. And it certainly is better. Yes. They don't have a specific like they have diabetes and they have right. ASA. Right. And they don't have like smoking, alcohol, other, and that's because of the database they use. Well, so I don't know. I mean, cause again, this is like, this is basically Northwell health clinical data. I would think that I would expect that, you know, you can go into the medical records and you, it would be, it would be work. It's, we're talking about, you know, tens of thousands of patients here um, at the baseline, but it's, it's there to, it can be abstracted. It exists, I would expect. So this is on hold now is what you're saying. Yep. I know it. You know it. Plague doctor behind me. He knows it. This is on hold. So no flashing. Flash is out. <laughs> That's another character. Flash <laughs> is out. Flash. The flash is out. Sorry, flash. flash so flash is out. How about for the toss up here? 
Toss-up time. Toss-up. Racial differences in care and outcomes after total hip and knee arthroplasties. Did the comprehensive care for joint replacement program make a difference? Okiwumi wrote this et al. And there's a commentary on this as well. So I'll start with this one. And it's good to see that you look at this. This is my my wheelhouse when it comes to bundles. But I think there's a caveat because I might actually put this one on hold too, which is interesting. So knives are out and they are sharp. (laughs) Ready to do some cutting. A flayed man. (laughs) It's very important to look at racial disparities when it comes to all aspects of orthopedics and medicine, especially total joints, where it's traditionally been a problem, both in preoperative care as well as operative care of patients. So it's a good thing. Now, we all know that all big databases have a problem when it comes to coding for race. When it comes to Medicare, it's not a bad one. We have to trust what's in the database. Now, what's interesting about this study is that it shows that CJR, which is a bundled payment program instituted by Medicare on randomly selected metropolitan hospitals and said, okay, in this time frame, you have to bundle your care. We're going to see what racial disparities were before and racial disparities were, were after. So they found that increased racial disparities over time were in blood transfusions and discharge to institutional post-acute care facilities. And that has been shown in a bunch of other studies too, that um, patients who are, and they split that just black and white. They they didn't use the other category because it's not as reliable. So black and white. So black patients were more likely to have blood transfusion discharge to post-acute care places, and they have decreased 90 and 180 day readmission. Now that's the whole point of the bundle. The whole point of the bundle is to reduce the amount of readmissions and hopefully improve care. But there's a catch. The reason that patients don't necessarily undergo surgery is because they know that they could bust the bundle. And if they bust the bundle because they're readmitted within 90 or 180 days, more and more surgeons were operating on healthier patients. And so I think that's the factor that we're missing here in terms of this this category here. They show that, okay, great. The CJR, they found that CJR based on their types of analyses and their methodology and a difference in difference approach, which you can talk way more about, but the idea is they want to take two potentially disparate populations and compare them to each other. And we're hoping that they're not disparate, but if they are disparate, this differences and differences analysis will account for that. So then if you have that approach, it showed that for black patients, there was significantly greater reductions in 90-day readmissions and 100-day remissions, reduced discharge to post-acute care facilities and Medicare payments towards skilled nursing facilities. So these areas, in theory, are good because you want to have reduced readmission for patients because that's a good thing. Now, the authors were argued that they're like, well, if the patients are not going to post-acute care rehab or skilled nursing facility, that may not be a good thing because maybe they needed it, but they didn't want to bust the bundle, so they didn't get it. And that's the hard part about looking at any of these bundles and just the superficial area is that you don't understand why a patient's either not readmitted or goes to an acute, that does not go to acute care facility. So is it that patients are just not getting surgery? Are we having racial disparities prior to surgery? And they're not even getting into surgery with the bundles because they're afraid they're going to bust it. Or are they saying, you know what, you don't need to be readmitted. You might be infected, but you don't be readmitted, you know, just go at home and, and take antibiotics and then you would be readmitted. So Overall, the idea of reducing racial disparities is a great idea. I'm not sure that this 100% tackles the question that we have here. I, I agree. I uh, agree with all of your points. They they used Medicare, but it was the Medicare limited data set, which sounds like it's limited in some way because it's limited in the title. Uh, I've never used the Medicare limited data set, so I'm not sure exactly where in those parameters there are limit. Like what what makes it limited necessarily? 
my concern is more when you get into the weeds on it. If you look at the actual 95% confidence intervals again, and the point estimates, I mean, any kind of reduction in disparities is great, but we're talking about like right around under a a 1.5 reduction in both of their main findings, which is 90 and 100 day readmissions with the lower bound confidence interval right at zero. It's like negative 0.03. So these, these are somewhat negligible reductions, although they may be significant. And the idea behind the bundle or the thought process behind why would bundles help reduce disparities is that it may create more standardized and uniform care. So uh, that could potentially impact some implicit or explicit biases in a number of respects. But in the work that, that we've done in our understanding around you know, the drivers of healthcare disparities, these tend to include healthcare segregation, access to care, decisions around surgery itself, like you brought up. And none of those things are really going to be impacted by the bundle payment program. And outcomes, the idea that outcomes are the same across hospitals just because they're using the bundle program is not the same. You can have hospitals that are resourced differently, that have different types of providers, that have different decision-making processes, even within the same city or the same zip code within a city. And just because they're all working on the bundle payment program, they're not necessarily going to have the same outcomes across the, the population just because of the participation. You do not get the Gucci socks, Gucci sandals, Gucci teddy bears, and pandas. They're so cute. They really are. <laughs> Something to aspire and to look forward to. How's that? Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, this work definitely needs to continue. And I applaud the authors for wanting to look at these kinds of things. I just think that the findings are not as compelling as sort of the narrative that they built around it. And and the real real reservation that I have is when they're saying, what we found here identifies the bundle design as a potential novel strategy to target racial disparities. First off, not that novel. They've been talking about bundles and these kinds of standardized programs as a way to minimize disparities, but just, you know, a blanket application of this across hospitals that are having issues in terms of driving disparities and other parameters is not going to solve it. I agree. All right. But keep up the good work of looking at racial disparities across orthopedics because I think this is definitely now for the big finish. Want to leave it off? Uh, I will be starting. Distracted driving. Distracted driving among patients with trauma attending fracture clinics in Canada. This is part of the Drive Safe, Drive Safe study. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Could be Drive Safe. I don't know. It's Canada. Um, Drive Safe, Drive Safe. <laughs> <laughs> this is uh, Rostevsky and colleagues. There is an infographic. So they had a close to 1,400 patients across four Canadian fracture clinics complete surveys around distracted driving. It was almost uniform that all of these individuals who were attending these fracture clinics reported that they engaged in distracted driving. Younger patients and those from more affluent households were more likely to be in the distraction-prone group But ultimately, one in six patients who are involved in motor vehicle collisions reported being distracted in the current accident, and one in three patients disclosed being distracted in a motor vehicle collision during their lifetime. 
So we talked about some sobering findings. I think those are, are pretty sobering. At the same time, I'm left asking, well, what about the people who were never involved in motor vehicle collisions or didn't have any fractures? I don't know if this is a more prone group to, you know, they, they have the fractures because there are certain behaviors that um, they engage in that are more likely to result in risk, we'll say. At the same time, I think we know across the board that distracted driving is a real problem and, and it's probably ubiquitous, probably doesn't even scratch the surface in terms of describing it. So some, some interesting work uh, out of Canada. There's nothing to put on hold here, of course. The, the clinical application is, I guess, open to question. So don't drink and drive is no longer a phrase you should be using. Don't text and drive. Don't distract it and drive. Those are the take. Yeah, that I mean the distractions action. here are pretty. Like it's like you know, do you talk to a passenger? Are you listening to the radio? All of that counts as distracted daydreaming. Stop daydreaming. I guess I shouldn't drive. Is that what we're going? Drive safe by not driving. I there are actually... no hmm. risk-free choices. There are just <laughs> choices with different risks. <laughs> Blue pill or red pill? Just saying. Mm-hmm. We're still in that metaverse. We are, and that's not going away anytime soon. This is a little less exciting when it comes to metaverse. I'm looking at minimally clinically important changes in who's 12 and who's 12 scores follow total joint replacement by So et al. And it's free for 30 days, so you can read it. And it's actually a good read, a good thing to read, um, especially if you collect problems on your patients. If you want to see what minimally clinically important changes are, so people talk about MCID and MCIC. This is a minimally important change that they use. And what this study does is they basically said, all right, what are considered the minimally clinically important differences in patient outcomes for HUS and CUS, meaning what's the difference that makes a difference, right? So if your pain score is a one and a 1.1, even if it's statistically significantly different, it doesn't mean it's clinically different, right? And that's the same thing for here looking at these PROMs. They specifically use the Australian Orthopedic Association National Joint Registry. So take that with a grain of salt. This is looking at one registry and this is looking at one patient population, which is Australia. And it might be different if you go to a different registry, if you go to AJRR, if you go to uh, UK, if you go to Sweden. Um, So those differences might not be the same and might not hold the same. What I do like, though, is they use three different anchor-based approaches, and our methodology uh, deputy editor can tell us a little bit more about it. But most of the study, they just use one anchor-based approach. So the fact they used three different ones and found similar results from it was actually helpful and gave a range of what could be what minimally clinically important changes. So the idea is that, you know, take this, this will be a good reference paper. I think another Kaiser Sose production of usual suspects might come up here. This might be tested because people might ask, what's the minimally clinical important difference for HUS and KUS, probably with broader ranges, but this might pop out in areas, I think, and I could be wrong, but this might pop up in areas that come up more relevant later on. I said, he'll flip you, flip you for real (laughs) on the HUS and KUS 12. Done and done. (laughs) All right. The next big finish, comparison of simulated low-dose and conventional-dose CT for preoperative planning in shoulder arthroplasty. This is by Lauren Zana and colleagues. Uh, Essentially, we see a lot of this in spine as well uh, and uh, increasing sensitivity and concern around the amount of uh, ionizing radiation that CT imaging exposes patients to. So uh, preoperative planning for total shoulder requires, uh, in in some respects, CT imaging or um, high proclivity for its use. And here they created a simulation where they looked at 
low-dose CT imaging for preoperative planning. And this used um, planning software as well as manual measurements. So they had 18 CT scans. They used a validated approach to simulate reduced radiation, 75%, 50%, and 25%. And the simulated low-dose CT images were sufficient for reliable measurements of all the necessary parameters, glenoid version, glenoid inclination, humeral head subluxation, using the software, as well as manual measurements by physician observers. They encourage adoption of low-dose techniques in preoperative shoulder CT to reduce radiation exposure. We have this problem in um, imaging for for adolescents for scoliosis, and then for you know more complex procedures um, around deformity in adult patients, fractures uh, across the board for preoperative planning. I think this is very valuable and has a lot of tangential areas in which it could be extended. Just like the last one, it'll come out in different areas, so it's a good thing. And setting the stage for background, the last one for the big finish is capsule mechanics after periacetabular osteotomy for hip dysplasia. This is by Engenal, and it's free for 30 days. So again, no excuses not to read this. And this basically looks at DDH cadavers. So they took 12 cadavers, some which had bilateral dysplasia and some who had unilateral dysplasia and said, does it make a difference if you perform a periacetabular osteotomy on patients? You know, a lot of times we say, well, there's more coverage, x-rays look good, we all high-five each other and come out of the operating room, but does it actually make a difference in mechanics? So they found that by, they took these cadavers, they stripped them all the way down to bone, they tested them in a robotic system to all different ranges of motions at five uh, newton meters. And after putting the pressure on it, they did a PAO on these dysplastic cases and then tested them afterwards as well. I will say the one caveat of this is that one PAO is not the same as another PAO, right? Dysplasia comes in different flavors. So how you make the osteotomy and then get achieve the coverage and then get fixation on it can be different and individualized for each um, person and obviously the baseline anatomy. So taking the results with a little bit of a grain of salt, and there's only 12 cadavers, 12 joints, I'm sorry, not 12 individuals, but 12 joints. And it showed that the PAOs had reductions in hip abduction and internal rotation, but greater increases in hip adduction and external rotation. So because it allowed you to do so, you could actually do this in deep flexion positions. And the idea is that while the capsule is there and it's restraining the hip and protecting it edge loading, it may not actually give you all the constraint that you need. So be careful in these patients after you've done a PAO, you want to make sure that you try to get as much coverage as possible, but don't rely hundred percent just on the capsular itself, the capsular um, structure itself to hold it. But the idea is that there should be different or improved range of motion after doing this PAO in different areas, reduced in some, improved in others. And it's something to be cognizant of. Is it true for every single patient undergoes a PAO? Not necessarily. It depends what PAO is, how many planes they go in, how they do the coverage. But it is interesting to look at the capsule mechanics afterwards. So um, just to start, it's a good cadaver study, but translating this to the clinical realm at all times is going to be a little bit more of a stretch. Yeah. And I think uh, that's it for uh, episode 11. Thank you, everyone. Um, Tune in for the next one. If you liked what you heard and you want to hear more, check out our back issues. Be sure to give us that five-star rating. We are going to be at ABJS together. This is May 31st. You're listening to this, hopefully, because you listen as soon as the episode drops for the June 1st issue of JBJS. And uh, this is the week that we're at ABJS. So uh, hit us up if you happen to be there. We're packed. We're on our way. But this is still your case. 
Dun, dun, dun. Till next time. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.